Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. It's been far too long. So can you talk us through what, I mean, if there is such a thing as a typical day, what a typical day looks like for you as you manage the various symptoms of your conditions? Right now, my typical day is probably fairly boring and grim to the average person, but also probably pretty regular to, you know, most of us here in this community. Yeah. Um, I've tried to be much more active in my lifestyle and that, you know, most certainly shows in the types of pictures that I've been able to take and post on social media. Yeah. Um, Earlier in the year, I was outdoors more often. I love the outdoors. I love being outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I still struggle with agoraphobia in the context of urban spaces, Mm -hmm. something about the rural outdoors and disappearing into nature is very comforting probably because I have that assurance that I'm not going to see another human being or hear their voice for miles around. Yeah. Um, But as the weather, um, you know, has changed and as it's gotten hotter, I can't do that as regularly. Um, I'm very sensitive though. Oh, exactly. I'm very dependent on other people to be able to take me places because I haven't driven my own car and, Mm going on 10 years now at this point. Um, And I can't, you know, rightfully ask people, you know, can you wake up at 4am to bring me to the, you know, walking trail at 5am so that I can go around the loop until 6am and then come back before the sun starts to rise and it Mm -hmm. immediately escalates up to um, the hundreds, that's just not yeah. feasible and reasonable. So I've been fairly landlocked right. um, since then. And with the change in weather, my symptoms have been largely aggravated. And with, um, if you're not very intimately familiar with Florida, um, summer is our storm season. Mm. 
It I rains. actually kind of love it. It rains all the time, but it's kind of refreshing. <laughs> oh, it can be absolutely refreshing. I love yes. the smell of rain and I love yes. the sound of it. But that change in the barometric pressure and that dampness is the worst on my joints. Right. And it's the worst for my migraines. Right. So I'm pissy. I'm symptomatic. I'm heat intolerant. I'm, you know, inflamed and angry. Mm -hmm. And I spend most of my time now just coping through that and managing and finding new and fun ways to manage that minute by minute pain. So I've um, transitioned my activity to be more inwardly focused on doing um, good mental health hygiene, on reflecting on what I can be doing with myself, for myself, um, focusing on ways that I can continue to improve my relationship with Caliban and my ability to trust in him, his ability to trust and depend on me, mm. um, looking at ways that I can be a better contributor and advocate for myself and also a voice of myself within not only this little niche community here, but also in a broader capacity. Absolutely. Which you're definitely so, doing with your, your social media handles. Yeah. yeah it's very I'm clear. Watch now that we've done this episode, I'm going to like crash and burn. I think you've been doing such wonderful things. And the fact that you're taking on a role, not only as an advocate, but also as an educator. And I think that's really key is that you're so willing as you have already done in this discussion to give people an understanding of what the terminology you're using is um, the history behind um, the various movements that that brought you to where you are, you know, um, and I think it's so important to understand context in that way um, and to understand how that then has a knock on effect on various emotional and physical traumas um, that you've experienced and that people in the community experience, you know. Um, 100%. Yeah. So like really being able to not only put yourself out there, but then also be like, and let me tell you why is so key because I think a lot of people are willing to say, this is my experience, but they're not um, as willing to explain it to everyone all the time. And you are so willing to do that, which is just so wonderful. And it's exactly why we got along so well in the very beginning. Cause I had questions, you know? Um, yeah. So it's really when you're met with openness no matter who you are, um, you're welcoming everyone who comes to you with openness. And it's something that you should have had from the word go um, and that you didn't always experience. And so that kind of give and take is it's beautiful to see you exercise that kind of compassion in response to a lack thereof that you've experienced in your life as well. First off, I really appreciate that. And that makes the bottom of my heart very warm and fuzzy. And that's also very validating and affirming that you've yeah. identified um, what I didn't have and what I'm compensating with. Yeah. But also, it's my natal drive. And I lit up when you said the word educator, because um, one of my stints where I did try to go back into, you know, a traditional workplace was I thrust myself into teaching at the college level and mm. I loved it. 
there are many reasons as to why that career ultimately didn't work out for me, but I borrow a lot from the pedagogy mm. that I believe in and that I exercised as a college inst instructor into the ethics of what my online persona is and what I do and how I want to transmit information online. Yeah. Um, because I think my favorite thing about how I conducted myself as an instructor is that I made myself very clear what I believed and, you know, what I believed was right. But I always wanted to arm my students with the tools and the information and the time and the resources in order to come to their own individual conclusions and to nurture and um, enunciate their own individual voices and their own conclusions and opinions, no matter how much I hated them by the time they got <laughs> to If they could express themselves beautifully, yeah. whatever they were telling me could still be the best thing that I've ever read. Yeah. And I saw a lot of success in that model of teaching. Yeah. So I also feel the rewards of sharing that um, in the kind of content that I produce online and in the feedback that I get from it because of, you know, folks like you reaching out to me because of other folks that have reached out to me from this little, you know, niche in the community that have taken the time to message me directly and say, I really appreciate what you've said here and be able to have these conversations where people open themselves up to me and tell me things that they haven't told their friends or their family yeah. or anything or things that they have attempted to tell these people that, but that they feel they're not being heard. Right. And that was something that happened to me quite frequently with my students where they would open up to me about their lives and, you know, their beliefs and their goals and their dreams. Mm. And I always felt like I was in a position where I did not have the power to be able to support them because that's just not part of the structures of what the education, you know, industrial complex is. Mm. So, um, after a brief hiatus from education, I tried to reinvent my career goals and go into big irony moment, mental health counseling. <laughs> I don't think there's anything ironic about that at all. I think it's actually an incredibly brave and intelligent path to take when you yourself have benefited from mental health. So. Oh, absolutely. And um, most people um, who become counselors will tell you that it's a mandatory part of the curriculum to be um, a client for at least six sessions. Yeah. Personally, I think that you should have to be a client for the entire duration of your program because I would agree. Yeah. Um, there's no way that you're going to get through that program stress-free or with like mm -hmm. total well emotional adjustment. Yeah. Um, so you need it. More and I than think many know. good therapists who, who make a career out of it, they, they continue seeing their own therapist throughout the, their entire career, which to me is like even more sensible because you just never know what you're going to discover about yourself as you talk to other people and the tolerances and um, concerns that you may come up against. So having Agreed. access to someone to talk to about that or just to offload if you've had a lot of tough clients in one day is huge. 
definitely. So work-wise, um, in terms of creating that kind of balance in your life or, or working toward um, a goal, your focus right now is really on your online presence. It's really on this online presence because mm -hmm. right now it's the best, it's the kindest thing that I can do to myself, not only in nurturing myself physically and emotionally in terms of the duress of what I can handle, mm -hmm. but it's also giving myself the light to pursue to keep myself engaged and moving forward because without having both of those things mm. um when i was in the workforce a lot of ways i was thriving you know i had good emotional nourishment but i had poor physical management um well, that's but, the struggle, but, isn't it? That that work-life balance yeah. thing is like, I'm not sure even people who are fully well physically I'll agree. don't struggle with it, you know? I strongly, I, I strongly disbelieve in the myth that people are actually well-adjusted. Mm. Um, but I would actually say I mean, it's less the people who are poorly adjusted to blame and more the system. Oh, agreed. 110%. You know? We yeah. absolutely exist in a... Uh, industrialist capitalist system that only puts value on labor. And I've cried about this many times to my therapist that I'm worthless because I can't net a certain um, monetary range that's appropriate for my level of education. I feel you because, so hard. Because yeah. I have, you know, a master's degree. Yeah. I have partial education in three other master's degrees. Yeah. I have five different certifications and I have thousands of hours of internships, volunteering opportunities, committees, conference chairs. Um, and I'm not fucking qualified for an entry level position for most places because I can't carry a 25 pound box. Yeah. Isn't that ridiculous? That's cutting point. Yeah. And yeah. You know, if I'm in a space where I'm nourishing myself physically, but I don't give myself anything mentally to be engaged, I also plummet and right. my mental health hygiene goes way down and I become very suicidally oriented. I become very catastrophic in my thinking habits, my social relationships disintegrate, I become isolated, and there's just no... You know, there's no in-between point. And I'm trying really, really hard right now with this social media online presence to cultivate that fair median point. Mm. Um, so I can't say that this is a selfless, you know, altruistic endeavor of what I'm doing here because it's me trying to find my way. But I can be honest about the fact that my intentions for doing this are trying to use the fact that I do have all of these qualifications and that I do have um, this innate ability to connect and yeah. to empower. And, and I think, to, yeah. You know, and I think very few of us have gotten involved in this kind of advocacy because we haven't been through something ourselves. Yeah. I mean, that is the, perhaps it's fortunate because at least you can relate to the people you're communicating with, but in other ways it's unfortunate because then who's going to advocate for us outside of our community, you know, but um, that for many of us, it takes getting sick or going through some kind of trauma to then reach out to the community. And at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with that either because we are all a community at the end of the day, aren't we? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like for better or for worse, every marginalized group of people is a community and there's a lot of discord in our little community. There's yeah. a lot of finger pointing. There's yeah. a lot of clicks. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, um, there's a serious problem with major brands and like lifestyle brands trying to infringe on our community. There's a major problem with, um, multi-level marketing businesses trying to um, predate and take advantage Mm. of our community. Um, There's a huge problem with um, the language that we use within our community being exclusionary. Mm. There's huge problems with... um, That's not just in our community. That's everywhere. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's really easy for outsiders to look in at our community and say, oh, well, that's fucked up. You know, I'm glad I'm not a part of that. Or even people who do, you know, identify at the base level with this community, but disavow themselves saying, I don't want to be any part of that. I don't want to be part of hashtags, um, you know, this language, these clicks, whatever. Mm. But um, I believe it was Becky. Um what's her screen name, chronically motivated or something like that. I believe it was Becky who said um, that by default, because of the fact that you are disabled, you are chronically ill, you are, you know, physically or emotionally, mentally, psychologically apart from the expectations of the majority, not even like that you are not part of the majority, that you deviate from those expectations of how a person should be functioning. Mm. Um, You are a part of this community, like it or not. And we're really, we don't bite. We're very nice (laughs) for the most part. (laughs) Compared to other like social groups that I intersect with because of other aspects of my identity. The chronic illness community is easily the most um, put together and polite of all of those communities. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's it's really interesting because we both come from different experiences to this same community. And it's so beautiful, like all the connections that, and I'm sure you can agree with this, like the connections that you make with people through social media is like, I mean, the people who I've met, people like you, who who I'm meeting, who like, I might not have met you as my neighbor or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure in another context, you know, we, we might've crossed paths, but the fact that like we can now is so exciting. There are so many wonderful minds um, and hearts in this community. And and just to be part of that is really exciting. Exactly. Exactly. So um, have you ever been in any situations where you've been forced to justify that you're disabled? Because I know that you recently just released a piece with your very good friend um, who's at the Disabled Hippie um, on Instagram. And you guys collaborate on a lot of stuff, but you guys just um, came out with a piece together that where you said that you're proud to be disabled and proud to be trans and how all of that pride goes together. But are you often in situations where you have to justify that you've got something else going on that people aren't seeing and how does that look? And does the experience change because Caliban might be there too? That's a really good question. And it's a very difficult question to have to, you know, think back in and articulate because naturally as early on as 
being a little kid. Mm. And, you know, the expectations of a little kid in kindergarten are you're going to play with your peers, you're going to, you know, go to recess, you're going to participate in PE. Mm. Because I couldn't do those things. That set me up for absolute social failure in terms of ever being able to integrate with and like collaborate with other people my age. Mm -hmm. And it also set a very poor precedent to the adult authority figures who were charged with my care when I was there because that kind of nuance and that kind of education just wasn't there. I think the most support that I got was the recommendation to enter a speech pathology program Mm. when I was in kindergarten. And even that was a nightmare because I was mercilessly bullied by, you know, even the other boys that I was in that program with because my differences from even like their reasons that were there Mm. were just like deviant enough to set me up as a target. Kids can be so cruel, can't they? Kids are kids are the meanest little yeah. like <laughs> they, they can are, be so cute and they can be so awful. <laughs> oh yeah, they're meanest shit. Yeah. But you know, I wasn't set up for success in that way. And even though I exceeded academically because I put mm-hmm. myself in a situation where I worked and compensated really, really hard to perform. Mm-hmm better than my peers because that was my motivation and that's what you know my mom wanted me to do so that I could have the most opportunities possible when I got out into the big world even though I you know excelled academically and even though I you know had all of this potential all this prowess because of my behavioral differences Mm. and because of my speech differences and because of my, you know, physical level of activity differences. Yeah. um, You were an outcast. Yeah. I was outcast. I couldn't get a recommendation for gifted because Mm. they said, well, you know, we can't rightfully give a recommendation for somebody who, you know, doesn't seem to be, cognitively all there or behaviorally all there because I was problematic and I was being written up for being confrontational and hostile. Wow. Um, they missed an opportunity there. At least you figured it out eventually and, you know, got I was better off to, because um, you know. I, I think I was better off in the long run because there certainly is a crisis that exists um, in the group of people who did go to gifted and then, Mm-hmm. left school and were not properly prepared for yeah. what it would be like out there. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that I was passed over on things that could have been opportunities or could have been at least rewards for the effort that I put in and were not given. Um, and the fact that I was passed by routinely again and again and again, you know, even things just innocuous as never being picked to be a part of a group project because, you know, forget being picked to be on like the kickball team or whatever, that wasn't even an option. Mm. But because I didn't have any camaraderie with people my age, I didn't have anything to set me up for being, you know, a dependable, reliable, trustworthy, friendly person to associate with. Which then, of course, compounded the mental health concerns, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Like, I 
don't know what kind of person I could have grown up to be if I had gotten the same level of support Mm. that I have now earlier on. Mm. And to some degree, it's not even worth thinking about or trying to imagine because that's just a reality that can't exist and doesn't exist. Yeah. So Mm. all I can be grateful for is that here in the now, you know, going on 30, I have the resources that I have now. And all I can do is be grateful looking at, you know, this Gen Z generation that's coming up and seeing them on social media that even though they're annoying or clicky or, you know, these other... They're also the Parkland kids though. You know what I mean? It's like, there are some annoying clicky kids doing, you know, mindless stuff on the internet, but then there's the Parkland survivors. And so there is that real dichotomy, but I'm sure that the generation before us thought that too, you know? Oh, absolutely. I I still get the, ugh, millennials comments. (laughs) I do too. I was having a conversation with a very close friend over dinner about that last night that like so many of us, we want we we want to create careers that really mean something um, because none of us want to waste our time making money for someone else in a corporate setting where there's, you know, God knows how many social dangers, but also in, in the sense that like we want the work we do to have real meaning in the world. Um, and this is a problem that like our parents' generation looks at us and is like, why can't they just stay in a job? And, you know, but it's because we all really want to make such a difference. And it's really interesting how our parents' generation they were us and to, like, yeah. you know, they were us during the Vietnam war. They were protesters and they were, you know, trying to create change. And it's just interesting how we keep going through these, these processes generationally, but like, it's just recognizing that like, this is just where our generation is at right now. And I think it's exciting. I think if work can become more meaningful and corporations can become more meaningful in their work, then we're doing something right. Exactly. I'm proud of these kids, even if also at the side of my like mouth, I'm like, ugh, children. <laughs> well, you've got dogs. So. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I have plenty of animals. I never have to like utter ugh, children in my own household. Well, so. they don't talk back, do they? So that's the big benefit, isn't it? Exactly. Now, what about with Caliban? Have you ever been in situations where you've been out with him and you've had people discriminate against you because they didn't want you bringing a dog in somewhere and you you had to explain it was a service dog? Fortunately, those um, interactions have been very few and far between because Florida is one of those states that does give rights to um, service dogs in training. and. I actually live pretty locally to a rather prominent um, dog training facility for folks with disabilities. Right. Um, So people are pretty used to seeing dogs about in public. I also happen to live in a very dog-friendly intersection in the county. So dogs in public is fairly much the norm. Fortunately, I've never run into blatant discrimination here locally Mm. um, for having Caliban with me. Um, When I was in New York recently, um, there was a small um, situation with um, being approached by a storefront owner um, who said, you know, no animals allowed in the facility, but backed off pretty quickly when they recognized that these were working, you know, task trained animals. Right. But... 
um, you know, those horror stories do exist out there of people being confronted or being, you know, blatantly told you can't have that in here. Mm -hmm. Um, What I have experienced, though, in having a dog with me is that people are inherently more suspicious of what I am doing because more attention is brought to the fact that there is something wrong with me. If I am identified as the handler of that dog, then it becomes the predating question in that person's mind of something is wrong with them and they're going to do something or something is going to happen. It's that bystander curiosity that kicks in. Wow. And what's interesting is that Caliban actually gives you a a visible disability component in your identity in the sense that like, as you're saying, you're then presenting as someone who is dealing with some kind of physical or emotional uh, condition that you need the dog for. And people are then suspicious. It's just so fascinating to me. Exactly. Because um, I used to be a full-time wheelchair user. I used to be a full-time person on crutches. So I did used to have those like components of visibility as well. Nowadays, my orthotics are virtually invisible. They either blend in with my clothes, they blend in with my shoes, or they're wearable under the clothes. And I can get by without, you know, anybody asking me about those things. And they never come up unless, you know, I'm going through a metal detector or something like that. But reintroducing a dog as part of my, you know, daily routine, it reintroduces the making visible aspect of having that condition. So, you know, where earlier I talked about conforming to ideals of masculinity in order to be more under the radar and be invisible, doing things like wearing traditionally masculine clothing, styling my hair, you know, pulling it back so it's not freely floating, you know, framing my face, um, using more masculine social conventions, so not being as expressive with my hands. And the people at home can't see this, but I've been talking with my hands the entire time. Wow. Um, yeah. I've learned You're hyper aware to- of those, those exactly. physical things. Yeah. It's just so interesting because also, you know, when you're in a wheelchair, people look at you and they know that you can't walk or that you're not comfortable walking for a long time. When you have a dog, could be anything, right? Exactly. It opens up the, um, it opens up all the possibilities. It's amazing because um, it's like, I see someone with a service dog and I'm like, puppy! And of course, you know, it's a service dog. You don't go up and pet them when they're war- working. But I just get so excited to see someone with a dog in a place that you wouldn't necessarily see a dog sometimes that like, I never think about the person. I'm always focused on the fur ball. <laughs> Exactly. One of my favorite things to ever happen in public was um, we went to Animal Kingdom. Mm. So we went to a zoo that literally has million dollar animals. There were gorillas at this zoo. Mm. Gorillas are a largely endangered species that will probably go extinct in my lifetime. Children are there. They are seeing these rare and fantastic animals. I walk by and immediately the most exciting thing that they have seen all day is this very ordinary looking dog <laughs> and screaming and getting ecstatic and i'm just like there are literally priceless animals here and they're <laughs> most excited to see yeah but they're all in cages whereas they can pet caliban oh exactly <laughs> it's like, the proximity isn't it 
Exactly. That's that, that's the allure for ch- children and overgrown man children as well. <laughs> or lady children like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it opens up that whole avenue where people see the dog mm-hmm. and they invite themselves to ask, what does he do? What is he right. for? And then it's like, an invasion of your privacy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um infamously people cite the ADA for the two questions of, you know, how to validate that a dog is a service dog. Right. That's an entitlement that's given to business owners. That's not an entitlement that's given to individuals. It's not within an individual's right to ask, is that dog a service dog? Mm -hmm. What tasks do they perform? So, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to navigate the public and you see it very frequently with dog handlers that they've started using, patches to identify exactly what kind of work that dog performs, perhaps what their diagnosis is. I personally don't do this and I don't like doing this because nobody's business, but yours. Exactly. I'm a grown ass man. I don't need to tell anybody anything. Yeah. I'm disabled and proud. I am happy to educate, happy to talk about it at any given time. I can, you know, uh, soliloquize about it. But also, I would like to really just get my fucking groceries and leave the store before I have, like, an episode in the middle of the checkout line. Like, I want to mitigate as little human interaction as possible. Absolutely, yeah. I totally get that. I've actually started even just to reduce stress and because it was like physically draining, I've started just having my groceries delivered because I was like, it's so much work to just go to the grocery store and I don't even have a service dog. So um, I can, I can relate to the grocery store experience for sure. But the rest of them, of course, you know, that's certainly your experience. Oh, exactly. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to UninvisiblePod, until the end of this month, they are offering you $50 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R-Labs.com. Enter code INVISIBLE50 at checkout and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Well, I was going to ask how important it is that we keep talking about everything that you and I have talked about, about disability, about invisible illness. How important is it that we, we provide a level of disability for the invisibility of these experiences? A hundred percent. Super important. Um, I've mentioned to you before that I have other diagnoses that coexist with the ones that we've talked about in here. And there are most certainly other aspects of my day-to-day life that coexist with these diagnoses. Mm. But I choose not to talk about many of those. Right. Primarily because there are other great advocates who are already representing those and using their voices in very powerful ways. Mm. And there Don't are sell yourself though. <laughs> oh no, absolutely not. Mm. But the things that I have chosen to speak about today, you know, 
endometriosis as a gender diverse individual, mm -hmm. uh, thyroid disease as a fucking whole concept, um, yeah. being a service dog handler, having a cluster B personality disorder, yeah. um, you know, being a disabled person who's, you know, tried to get into the workforce and has not succeeded in the way that I wanted myself to be set up for success for. Mm. Um, these are things that are not unique to me, mm. but they are my unique experience that I have total authority to be able to use my advocacy platform to represent. And because I can do that and because I divert my energy to talking about those topics and prioritizing those topics over the other facets of myself, yeah, it creates a space that improves the quality of life for other people who felt like they were the only ones who felt that way or that they were the only ones who were diagnosed in such a way or lived such an experience. Well, and I'm glad you brought this up too, that there are certain aspects of your diagnoses that, that you're not a, as public about. And I yes. think it's important to acknowledge the fact that there's privacy involved in these conversations too, that like, you know, so many of us are out there on social media and, you know, posting our stories or the stories of others. And sometimes that story is more than what you're seeing. And it's okay that you're not being told the whole story because it may not be any of your business. Exactly. And also, it may be something that like you might still be processing and working through and people aren't always ready to talk about everything. And as you say, you're, you're aware that there are people in other spaces who are advocating for your other diagnoses in ways that are very powerful. And what you're doing is really targeting and talking about these particular issues in a very poignant way and not letting them be sort of lost in the rest of the story as well. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I that's fantastic. Funny. I think there are plenty of people who were strong advocates in that way. Um, Julian, you know, the disabled hippie is a good example of somebody who is very public and very, you know, strong spoken, but also, you know, isn't giving you the full story. Famously, he doesn't like over medicalizing the components of his um, chronic conditions. Um, Jamila Jamil is another person who yeah. very candid about having autoimmune disease and EDS, yeah. but uses her voice and her platform instead to empower um, the experiences of other chronically ill, you know, prominently women, but people as a whole. Um, yeah. Famously extends that privilege out to advocate for people who are less likely to have their voices heard. Yeah. And famously shames uh, celebrities yeah. who sell slimming teas. Oh, um, yeah. With the I Way movement, which is really fantastic. Um, oh, absolutely. She's one of my heroes, too. So I'm really glad you brought her up. <laughs> um, Any opportunity to bring her up is a good yeah, opportunity. I know. She's so amazing. She's, if you're out there listening, Jamila, I want you on the show and also as a best friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, can you tell me Ariel, and I wondered what your top three pieces of advice would be for somebody who may be entering the world of chronic and or invisible conditions. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean disability. It could also mean gender identity questions. What would you recommend to someone who, who looks like they might be like you? This is a really good one. I was absolutely terrified about this part of the podcast. Like, I listened to several episodes. Oh, you're so sweet. 
studying the like top threes and studying the types of like prompts that you give because I was like okay I need to like brainstorm what I'm gonna say at this part Um, (laughs) so advice for somebody who's either just coming into an identity where there is an existing community Hmm. but they are just getting their feet wet whether it's gender identity whether it's rediscovering a piece of their past, Mm. whether it's a chronic condition, whether it's a progressive disability. um, The first thing that I recommend is trying to find your people immediately. Yeah. Um, Not necessarily going to, you know, like Google, if that's not, you know, not, not to like Google, like, like, to find your symptoms or to like find yeah, don't like, go down the MD. to be a certain way because that's the mistake that I made very mm-hmm. early on was that I tried to pathologize myself to a certain specific rigor of standards. And yeah. that's why I struggled for so long with having a thyroid disease is because I was one of those people who just is very treatment sensitive and treatment resistant. Um, it's why I struggled with my gender for so long because I was very stressed out by the rigor of binary genders. There's, um, a guide out there famously called the Hudson's, um, FTM guide, which tells you how to be, you know, a trans guy and how to transition and all the things that you should do and all the clothes that you should wear. Oh, Uh, which is that in and of itself is so limiting. Oh yeah, it stressed me the fuck out. Um, yeah. It was awful. And does it um, exist for people who are transitioning to female too? It does. It ex- it ver- like these resources absolutely exist. They're out there. There are people who like give you this guide. And the the biggest mistake that I made is that I looked at these things first, and I took these things as my bible. Yeah. And what I should have done, and where my journey got easier with these things, is when I started communicating with other people who were going through similar but not the same experiences and I realized that I was allowed to have my individual nuance well and And did you meet someone like Julian because of the community or did you know him before so I actually met Julian through a mutual local friend okay um and we've been a huge part of your community obviously the two of you really close yeah. yeah Definitely. Mm -hmm. So we've been acquaintances through this mutual friend who initially found me through the service dog community. So it's kind of like a, you know, weird connect the dots situation to where I became closer with Julian this past year because we began to identify other crosshairs that existed outside of these major intersecting points also because we were forced to interact with each other in person when we just happened to stumble across each other right but that's the fun but it sounds like it's sort of through the community because it was through that friend in the service dog community and you sort of found each other that way exactly yeah so you never know your new best friend could be out there exactly and there are you know three of my best friends I've had in my life for 13 years because of live journal. And oh my gosh, live journal. What a throwback. <laughs> because we found each other through, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm going to admit this on a I love that you're bringing it up. Oh my God. I remember having one of those at college. 
right? Yes. So we found each other through the live journal community for wow. people who were millennials. We didn't, you know, we weren't called millennials then, but who were millennials who listened to music from the 1960s and 1970s. Like oh, that is quite random. Exactly. And <laughs> the common thread between all of these people is that we're all some kind of trans and that we're all some kind of sick and disabled. But wow. we found each other through a completely unrelated and separate community. That's amazing. And it just shows how much people power there is in there. Okay, so people power. People power is power. the first, first one. Yep. Um, the second one mm. is, is establishing your team from yeah. those people. Like, creating your A-team, you know, finding people who ally with you, finding people who advocate with you, finding people who you can vent to, finding people who you can celebrate with. Mm -hmm. um, because you need all of them and you need all of them for various aspects of your being. You need that salt friend that you can just be like pissy and bitchy with. You need that friend that you can call on to celebrate even just the most like innocuous and mundane aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. You need that friend who's going to stick up for you in a hard situation, even when you do not ask them to, that just invites themselves to um, advocate for you. Mm -hmm. And we have an unfair expectation that a person should be all of these things all of the time. And this is something that I especially have struggled with, um, with splitting right, on people yeah. is expecting them to do it all. But you need to give people the respect and the autonomy that not everybody is who you need them to be all of the time. But if you can rely on them to be, you know, somebody who is on your team and who is willing to pick up the slack of that team in a given situation, you're going to be okay. Yeah. So for the third one. That's really great. I love that. And it's not just your socially, it's also your people medically too, isn't it? Yes, ideally. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, ideally, yes. You want to make sure that your providers are also your advocates. Yeah. Um, I've been really lucky in this aspect and that um, all of my providers I found through my therapist mm. because oh, he himself aggregated all of this. Um, actually, number three is a good one. The third one is yeah. um, get a good therapist. Oh, um, well, there we go. It's all connected. <laughs> yeah. No matter who you are, no matter whether you have um, a pre-existing mental illness, the same way that you don't have a primary care doctor if you have, like, most people who go to the doctor aren't chronically ill. Right. Um, you have your preferred physician that you go to, you know, once a year for your annual checkup. Mm -hmm. Likewise, you know, to practice good mental health and good mental hygiene, you should have a therapist that you trust and that you know you can go to if you're feeling under the weather. Yeah. Um, and if, especially if you're entering a community, um, because of your, you know, invisible personal internal struggle mm -hmm. you should have that outlet of a trained professional who not only has the resources because of their educational background but who has the resources because of other clients that have gone to them and who have shared what works for them yeah it means that you don't have to stumble through the same experiences that those clients had to in order to access those resources 
It's so work smarter, because, not harder, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because of the fact that other trans clients that my um, therapist works with had um, had luck with certain medical providers, hmm. I was able to get those names. And I was able to have a team of trans-affirming medical providers who are also extremely competent and well-educated medical practitioners. Yeah. That's really wonderful. And I think that's mm-hmm. all really sound advice. Um, Thank you. Yes, which leads us to the final top three list, which yes. is, you know, obviously you've made lifestyle changes to manage symptoms and to really embrace your true identity. And uh, particular lifestyle changes or guilty pleasures or comfort activities, like a top three, that things that just give you joy that you will do regardless of, you know, the consequences or, or, uh, you know, oh man, how you're feeling. Um, one of them I think is definitely throwing myself a hundred percent into any physical opportunity that's right. given to me, like going out in nature because it's just so nourishing overall even though even on good days, I physically pay for it while I'm moving. Yeah. Um, the next one, I have a really poor relationship with food. I just do. I think it comes with the territory with having any kind of, um, one, any kind of physical, superficial, um, poor self-image of yourself. So number two, I have a really poor relationship with food. And I think that comes with the territory, one, with having um, a dysphoric self-image of what, you know, a person who is a man or is a woman is supposed to look like. Um, And it also comes with the territory of having a chronic illness that impacts the gut so severely. Yeah. And having a hereditary history of gut-related disorders. So food, to me, not only has its effects been manifested as something that um, is scary to me, but also food in and of itself is seen as a dangerous item to me. So mm. um learning to identify positive experiences with eating and with food is a good thing. So going out to eat with other humans or um, getting involved in cooking, um, food has become an adventure activity for me. Isn't that a good way of seeing it? Exactly. Yeah, that's great. It's on par the same with putting myself out in nature. Mm. I'm essentially jeopardizing my health because like being in nature, I'm exposing myself to allergens. I'm exposing myself to heat. I'm exposing myself to things that give me duress. Mm. Likewise with food, I'm exposing myself to things that potentially will give me duress or that I know will give me duress, Mm. but I'm creating and nurturing positive experiences and, you know, enlightening experiences. And I'm affirming the truth of the matter that it is also good for me. Yeah. Um, the third thing that's Mm -hmm. just my absolute, like brings me nothing but joy third. Um, and I share this in common with Laura when you had Laura on here Mm -hmm. and I've reached out to Laura since to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, podcasts are really any kind of auditory, 
content because I have problems with auditory processing. And mm. when I watch TV or when I um, listen to media, I need to have a captioning component in order to articulate those words and attribute meaning to them. Yeah. Um, so challenging myself further with um, the auditory content, listening to podcasts. Um, my favorite, especially, are true scary stories and true crime content because yeah. it's invigorating and it's exciting and it keeps me like committed and glued to what's going on. So sure. it's you could get lost really, in the story more. Exactly. It's warm. It's nourishing. It's fulfilling. Um, I love that you've called true crime warm, nourishing, and fulfilling, but I'm here oh, with you for that. Like, <laughs> there's nothing that humbles you more than hearing about how close we are to the extinguishing flame of life, honestly. Well, and that's something that we haven't really talked about today, but one of the platforms that you also advocate for is being death positive. Yes, I guess that means you have to ask me back on the show in the future. I think it might. So tell everyone, Ariel, where they can find you on the interwebs. Where can people find you to, to look into your work and your writing? So if you are interested in death-positive content, mm -hmm. um, you can check out my blog, um, Carpe That Diem, which is one word with two A's in it because somebody already took Carpe That Diem. Um, so how did it spell it out for us? So that's going to be, oh gosh, C-A-A-R-P-E-T-H-A-T-D-I-E-M wordpress.com. Got it. Um, if you are interested in my full spectrum content, not just hyper-focused on death and dying and the value of life, um, you can get that on my Instagram, which is Carpe that DM without the double A in it. So C-A-R-P-E with one underscore between um, Carpe and that and two underscores between that and DM. Because again, this is a very popular um, phrase apparently that other people have been drawn to. Yeah. Well, and we'll link to it on the website page. If, if people are listening and they're like, I'm so confused, it'll be linked on the website page. And we'll obviously link on our social platforms as well. So people will be able to just click and see you. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ariel, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you better and having you on the show. I'm really just so honored that you've taken the time to share your story with us. And I can't wait to chat more and have you on again to talk about mortality and anything else that may come up between now and then. Absolutely. It's been an honor and privilege to be on here. And I am very grateful that you extended this invitation to me. And I can't wait to come back again. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.